If you're able, please stand for the reading of the word. This morning I'll be reading from Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, Highland. Best reader ever. <laughs> For those who are visitors, that's my lovely wife, Jana. Um, my lovely wife, Jana. Anyway, and uh, for, for Highland members, uh, uh, you don't recognize me. I have a haircut. This is Richard Beck up here in front of you. So good to see you. I'm filling in, for, if you're visiting, I'm filling in for Shane Hughes, who's our regular pulpit uh, minister. A couple weeks ago, Shane asked me if I would share a sermon that I recently preached out at uh, Pepperdine, the Pepperdine Lectureships. And so I agreed to do that, but I realized a lot of you might have seen that video. Mike Cope shared it online. A lot of people have watched it. So the first part of this uh, sermon is a, a bit of a repeat from that Pepperdine sermon the, to get across the, the lesson that Shane wanted you to hear. But I do want those who've seen that video to know that I will make a turn here in the back half of this sermon to say some things that will be new and fresh and specific uh, to things going on here at, at Highland. But what did I talk about at Pepperdine? Well, the, I start off with this, that one of the best things about growing up in the 1980s, I'm solidly in the middle of the 80s, class of 85, celebrate Halloween 1980s. It was a very cool time. At the, I remember at my church, the Erie Church of Christ in Pennsylvania, 
the adults and the teens would go back and forth hosting the haunted house. This was a problem because we got increasingly competitive as the adults and the teens were trying to, it was like an an escalating um, sequence of horror each year. And I do remember uh, when the teens formally and finally lost because we walked into the basement and there strapped to the table was the preacher's wife, Marianne, in a lace dress, screaming because her midsection was bloody and a big like guillotine thing was swinging through her midsection. This was church in the 80s. And we were like, okay, we can't, we can't really top that, okay? And I shared this at Pepperdine, and Jennifer Crisp uh, told me that here in Highland, we used to have at least one haunted house. Yes. In fact, I, I have it on good authority that we chase children to the halls of Highland with chainsaws. <laughs> with chainsaws. Otherwise known as the good old days. When we used to chase children with chainsaws. I don't know if they teach that at ACU anymore. I don't know what they're teaching youth ministers anymore. But chainsaws is probably not in the, in the syllabus. Now, we don't do that anymore, right? We celebrate fall festivals. Yes. And why? Because in the 80s, there was a thing that happened called the satanic panic. Do you all recall this? I remember when my Aunt Barb thought we were all going to be demon-possessed because we played Dungeons and Dragons. It was a very anxious time. So the satanic panic happened, and so churches were like, you know, we shouldn't be messing around with Halloween. No more haunted houses, okay? Well, you know, have you guys heard that lyric, why should the devil have all the good music? Right, why should the Satanists, why should the Satanists have haunted houses? And so some Christian churches invented their own Christian version of the haunted house called the Judgment House. Anybody? Now, Pepperdine, they thought I was making this up. This is a real thing that happens in this town. There's a Judgment House every Halloween down the street from my house at a Baptist church. So you might say, what's a Judgment House? Okay, the first thing you got to do is you got to bus in a lot of lost teenagers. <laughs> You bust them in, okay, and uh, put them on a van, bring them to the church, and they, and they go into a room, and there in the room, they see a teenage party. Kids are drinking beer. They're smoking cigarettes. They're smoking marijuana, doing drugs. Kids are making out on the couch, about to go off in the bedroom. Hey, where are the teens tonight, today? Yeah. That stuff. And so we watch it, this Sodom and Gomorrah of adolescent life. And then we go to the next room. Like, what's going what's gonna to happen? And there we see, like, blinking police ambulance lights and shattered glass all over the floor and bloody teenagers splayed out on the highway because they've all just died in a car accident on the way home from the party. What's going to happen next? Then we take the teens to the third room. And it's dark. And there's firelight. And all the wicked teenagers, the drug users, right? The sexually immoral are being tortured by all the demons of hell. And you behold it. And I can imagine you just here looking 
peering through the darkness and going, hey, isn't that Carl, the college intern? Like, why is he dressed up like Beelzebub, you know? And so they see what's awaiting them, these sinners. But then we take them up into the sanctuary. It's, it's the sales pitch. This is what awaits you down in the basement. But tonight, if you accept... And I want to start with the judgment how we describe the gospel. How we have described how salvation works. And ultimately what the love of God is, is like about this. And I have two concerns today that I want to share. The first one is a pastoral concern. The way that message of the judgment house shapes our feelings and our relationship with, with God. And then the second will be an evangelistic concern. But let me begin with a pastoral concern. Here's my concern about a judgment house presentation of the gospel. At root, what we say is that God has kind of a stormy attitude towards you. You're facing judgment, you're facing anger, you're facing wrath. This is the sinners in the hands of an angry God. But then, because of what happens on the cross, God's feelings towards us change. God's countenance goes from stormy to sunny, and wrath and anger and judgment is replaced with joy and grace. My concern about that way of describing what happens on the cross is that it suggests that what happens on the cross is a change, a change of God's affections towards us. That God's emotions are changeable, they are inconstant, they are variable, they, they fluctuate, and they can even be a bit unpredictable. And by unpredictable, I mean because once you kind of secure the affections of God, there is always this lingering worry that maybe you could do something wrong and that sunny countenance could turn back to stormy again. And for many of us, we were raised with that vision of God, that God's emotions were volatile, unpredictable, and, and changeable. And it formed in us what psychologists would describe as an anxious attachment. An anxious attachment is when a child has to monitor and manage the unpredictable emotions of a parent. Where the child has to monitor their emotional state and then behave in such a way to, to then manage those emotions to keep that parent happy and pleased. And many of us were raised in church cultures that formed in us this kind of anxious attachment where everything we would do, we would have to kind of look with a worried eye toward heaven to monitor the emotions of God. And that what we did here in this space was largely to manage those feelings so that that sunny countenance wouldn't turn stormy. How many of you were raised in a church culture where at church every Sunday you would bow your heads and you would pray, 
May what we do here be pleasing. Because that was no guarantee. Maybe what would happen here would not be pleasing. And so we would pray and wonder, hoping that we had done enough and had done it correctly so that God would stay happy. That anxious attachment. I remember, and it didn't take much to make you a little worried. I remember as a teenager, I went to a church where the young men and the men would come up front and stand by the communion table. Anybody raised in a church like that? You know, we'd stand up there. And I remember one of my friends, it was the first time he ever led communion. And uh, he, got, he got confused. And he accidentally sent around the juice first. He got it out of order. The juice went around first. And I just looked at my buddy and I was like, we are going to hell. Like, this is, <laughs> this is the wrong order. Has anybody been to church like that where this, the anxiety rippled through? Like, we're not sure what he feels about this. Another, another example of this anxiety in my church was um, a woman in our church had gone off for the summer. We don't know where she was, but I think she was hanging out with Pentecostals. Because she came back and began, in the middle of a song, she began to clap. Now, for those of you raised in traditional churches of Christ, that we, didn't, we didn't clap. The trouble was, there was no scripture about that. Is clapping an instrument? We weren't sure. But it seemed percussive. It did seem that. And so we really got worried. So we sat her down and said, listen, we're not sure what he thinks about this. So cut it out. Just, just stop. And how many of you were in Church of Christ? We're just still not sure. Can we clap? I don't know. Uh, the ambivalent clapping in Churches of Christ is something to behold. Um, now that's funny. We can all get up here and tell stories of things that happened when we were raised in these churches that had these anxious attachments. And some of them are almost nostalgic, these stories. But we've experienced this at Highland, have we not? Just recently. Our, our transition from acapella to instrumental music was a season where a lot of our anxious attachments surfaced. And even just most recently, in our gender discernment, a lot of those anxious attachments, again, resurfaced. What is he going to think about what we're doing? And, and what is going to happen to us? What is at risk if we get this wrong? And if you recall... Um, during that discernment, the gender discernment after the announcement, um, I was on this stage with David Lang, and, and as we were talking about just kind of the, 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 the way we read scripture, given that new discernment, um, I said to you that, you know, throughout the history of the Churches of Christ, we have discerned lots of issues. Like my, my grandmother grew up in what's called an anti-church. Some of you young people have no idea what this is. But the, my grandmother's church... Uh, they, wouldn't have a they weren't allowed to have a kitchen in the church. I know, that's puzzling. But they thought he might get upset. So they didn't have a kitchen. And maybe we discern, like, whether you had one cup or two cups. That's it. That was a, a thing. We had to discern if we can clap or not. We have to discern instrumental music. We just, we're always discerning things. 
And every time we discern these, these things, I said to you that day, I said, you know, really, I know it seems like it's a different issue and we're looking at different parts of the Bible. But at the end of the day, we only ever really discern one issue over and over and over again. And it's this. Is God for you? Is God really in your corner? Is the relationship really so fragile that if you got to get this wrong, everything is at risk? Because it's, it's that backdrop of anxiety that poisons the well of discernment. Because here's the thing. You cannot read the Bible well when you are scared. You cannot read scripture well when you're afraid. Because that anxiety will swamp any sort of ability to listen to each other and listen to the spirit. Because we feel everything is at risk and because the stakes become so high that the judgment house is back in play. And how are we ever going to find our common way together in the middle of that anxiety? You know, as a psychologist, you know, we're talking here about like, you know, the amygdala, that little, that little almond-sized part of your brain that regulates your, your fight or flight response. And when that amygdala gets activated, it's very difficult to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit because you are now processing life as if you're being chased by a predator. And in that survival mode, it's very hard to hear the still small voice. It's very hard to, to trust as we move forward with these discernments. And so it's funny to talk about anxiety, about clapping, but we've been through an experience here recently where we had to face our anxious attachments. So here is the gospel today. The gospel, I think, is summarized really well in, in Revelation 13, verse 8, which says and describes Jesus as the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Let me say that again. The lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Jesus is on the cross before you even existed. Jesus is on the cross because the love of God is there from the beginning of time. The way to think about the cross is this. What we see on the cross is not a change in God's love for you. What we see on the cross is how God has always, eternally felt about you. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There is no variability or unpredictability, or fragility, or volatility in the love of God. That love has existed from the beginning of time. That's what we see in history, a vision of God's eternal love. And if that seems like some sort of like theological magic trick I just pulled, let's just look at the parable that Jana read for us. At what point, my brothers and sisters, did the father's love for the prodigal son change? 
At what point in that story did the father's countenance go from stormy and wrathful and judgmental? And then he had to go off and kind of work through some sacrificial logic to kind of get his head straight about how he's going to feel about that son. At what point do we see the, the change from stormy to sunny? And the answer is, we don't. The love of that father existed before the son left. The love of that father was constant and steady as the son was leaving. The love of that father was constant when the son was in a far country. And the father's love is constant when the son returns. The father's love is constant through the entire story. So let me suggest that any descriptions in scripture of separation or wrath or judgment is on our side of the equation. The distance or the proximity in the relationship isn't because of the father, but because of us walking away or returning. That God's love is firm and constant and unchanging. But here's where I want to make a, a transition from the, the message I shared out at Pepperdine. Because in one sense, I don't, I don't have, a lot of the concerns I had at Pepperdine are, are not really concerns I have for us as a family. I think because of our discernments and because of sitting under the preaching of Lane Anderson and Mike Cope and Jonathan Stormont and Shane, I think we are not a very anxiously attached group. I think we're pretty securely attached. I think Highland is pretty good on this point, that God loves you, has always loved you, and will always love you, and that never changes. Amen? I think, now to be clear, there's still some anxiety crackling on the edges of us. Right? Those scripts go deep emotionally. But for the most part, I think we are going through a a therapeutic process. We're really starting to believe this. And so if that's the case, I'm, I don't have too much worries about a judgment house description leaking into Highland. And, but I do have an evangelistic concern. And so let me say something perhaps provocative. Here, I think we're pretty good on the message that God loves you. From an evangelistic perspective, I think we're really good on that message. But here's my concern. I think we do have an overly optimistic view of how compelling that message is to the culture. I think Highland is very good at saying to the culture, God loves you. But I think we have an overly optimistic vision about how compelling or interesting that message is for the wider world. Now, why do I say that? Well, because, listen, the, the message that I just preached, that God loves you unconditionally, is very good news for the anxiously attached. And so there's a generation of us who grew up anxiously attached. And so when the message of grace came to us, we were like, that is a relief to know that that stormy countenance isn't as changeable or fragile as I was raised to believe. And I'm kind of starting to believe that God is for us. That even if we don't get it perfectly down here, nothing is really at jeopardy. We believe that. Now, that's good news for us. But as our culture becomes increasingly post-Christian, 
The message that God loves you, good news for the anxiously attached, is less than compelling for what psychologists would describe as the avoidship isn't even a thing. They maybe even don't believe in the relationship or the relationship has become such an object of disinterest that us showing up to comment about that relationship is kind of ho-hum. Here's my concern. My concern is that this is how we sound as Highland to the culture, right? We knock on the door of the culture. Hello, world. And the world says, yes. It's us, the Highland Church. We're back. When we were here on your doorstep and we told you that, you know, God was going to send you to hell. Right? With that judgment house message. And the world's like, I do remember that. Well, we've been thinking about that. But we were wrong. That in fact, God does... Well, I'm glad you guys are working some stuff out. It's good to see you're on a journey. Um, but, you know, we're all good here. But, good for you. We're glad you're less, you know, anxious now. Do you get my point? How, how, do you, how, do, how does this message of a, of, a, of a happy God affect people that are avoidantly attached? Now, I want to be clear. The message that God loves you is, it is the answer to everything that ails that person. So I want to be clear about that. What we're offering on the doorstep is life. But it's the disinterest in it. It's the avoidant attachment. It's the dismissiveness that, that I don't think we have really got our heads around. So I want to conclude with this exhortation. I think we've got that message God has loved down. But how do we share the gospel God's love to the avoidantly, not the anxiously attached, but a culture that is increasingly avoidantly attached. I think this is our, our most pressing challenge. And so rather than leave you with a big homework assignment, let me give you one final thought about this. Like what, what this might look like. First, I, I think really what we got to do is we have to begin to identify the world's deep wounds. And these will be variable. I think that's one of our problems, is that back in the Judgment House days, when the world shared a broadly Christian worldview, I think really we could come right down the, right at the issue. But the culture is fractured now, and, I, and I, so I don't think there's a silver bullet way to do this. The wounds out there are various and different. And we need to be better diagnosticians. Guilt is, though, still a problem. Shame still is a problem. I work as a prison chaplain, and so I very much know that guilt is a pressing challenge, pastorally, in evangelistically. And for the guilty, and for the shameful, the message that God forgives you is still a compelling message for many. But for many people in our culture, guilt is not their pressing pastoral problem. And so showing up with a message of forgiveness isn't hitting their wounds. And so what are their wounds? 
Here's a quote from Matthew Crawford, who describes the, the ailment of the modern world this way. Once upon a time, our problem was guilt. The feeling that you have made a mistake and with reference to something that was forbidden, like those teens in that party, the forbidden fruit. And that was felt to be a stain on your character. But today, however, the question that hovers over your character is no longer how good you are, but of how capable you are. Where capacity is measured here in something like kilowatt hours, your raw capacity to make things happen. And with that shift comes a new pathology, a new disease into the modern world. The affliction of guilt has given way to weariness, fatigue. The weariness of the vague and unending project of having to become your fullest self. The vague and unending project of becoming your fullest self. This new pathology, the weariness of the self, is especially threatening in a culture of performance. When my students experience anxiety, it's not judgment house anxiety. It's the vague and unending project of meeting their potential, of getting into grad school, of making the grades, of succeeding, the meritocracy. And they are both anxious and exhausted. And God's love is good news for the exhausted as well. But it's not guilt anymore. It's weariness and fatigue. So my brothers and sisters, as I welcome the praise team back up here, what does evangelism look like for the avoidantly attached? Let me conclude with this. I don't think it begins with a sales pitch anymore, but more with a diagnosis. It's less about marketing and more about medicine. There's a question that haunts Jeremiah 8. And the question is, is there a balm? Is there medicine in Gilead? Where can one find a physician? Is there a doctor in the house? Is there any healing for our wounds? Highland, we know the answers to those questions. And so may you be a doctor of the soul for this community. May you surgically diagnose the wound of your neighbors and friends and family and workplace and say, you know what's hurting you? There's medicine for that.